You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This is a bit from the book The Fifth Heart by Dan Simmons, Chapter 1. In the rainy March of 1893, for reasons that no one understands, primarily because no one besides us is aware of this story, the London-based American author Henry James decided to spend his April 15th birthday in Paris and there, on or before his actual birthday, commit suicide by throwing himself into the Seine at night. I can tell you that James was deeply depressed that spring, but I can't tell you for a certainty why he was so depressed. Of course, there had been the death in England from breast cancer of his sister Alice a year earlier on March 6, 1892, but Alice had been a professional invalid for decades and had actively welcomed the diagnosis of her cancer. Death, she told her brother Henry, was the event which she'd always been anticipating with the greatest enthusiasm. At least in letters to family and friends, Henry had seemed to support her in her eagerness for an ending, down to describing how lovely her corpse had looked. Perhaps this unchronicled depression in James was augmented by the problem of his work not selling well over the immediately preceding years. His 1886 novels, The Bostonians and The Princess Casamassima, both influenced by Alice's slow dying and by her Boston marriage relationship with Catherine Loring, had been major sales disappointment for all concerned, both in America and England. So by 1890, James had turned his quest for riches toward writing for the theater. Although his first stage offering, the American, had done only moderately well, and that only in the provinces rather than London, he convinced himself that the theater would soon turn out to be his ultimate pot of writer's gold. But already by early 1893, he was beginning to sense that this hope was both illusion and self-delusion. Just as Hollywood would beckon literary writers to their doom for more than a century to come, the English theater in the 1890s was sucking in men of letters who, like Henry James, really had no clue as to how to write a successful stage production for a popular audience. Dan Simmons is the Hugo Award-winning author of science fiction novels that include Hyperium, Ilium, and Olympos, He's the author of the Joe Kurtz mystery novels, including Hard Case, Hard Freeze, and Hard as Nails, horror novels that include Summer of Night, Children of the Night, and A Winter Haunting, the historical novel The Crook Factory, and suspense novels that include Song of Kali, Darwin's Blade, The Terror, Drood, Black Hills, Flashback, and The Abominable. His new novel is The Fifth Heart. Thank you for joining me, Dan. It's always a pleasure, Rick. Dan, this novel has such an interesting setup. Tell us, when did you first decide to introduce Sherlock Holmes to Henry James? I think it was almost 15 years ago that I bought a little trade paperback about the five of hearts, the Henry Adams and his wife Clover, and John Hay and his wife Clara. She was the only non-extraordinary person in the group, and she knew it too well. And the fifth heart... Uh, was Clarence King, who was a famous geologist, mountain climber, saved millionaires, millions, because he he uh, he solved a diamond hoax out west. And every day at 5 p.m. they'd meet and talk. And I, w- I wanted to put them into some complex plot. Uh, of course, Clover had died. She committed suicide in 1885. But I decided that this had to be Henry James visiting, who was a good friend of the Adamses and John Hay and so forth, but with Sherlock Holmes. Because to my way of thinking, those two men were the most secretive, the most personally protective of themselves, uh, and in some ways devious men in Europe. And I'm talking as if Holmes were real, but when people asked me what I was writing a year ago, I'd, I'd say, oh, a story about Sherlock Holmes and Henry James visiting America. And I swear to heavens that eight out of ten answers, her responses were, did they really? (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I think that must have been really fun and difficult, this novel is 
really fun to read. It's a total joy from beginning to end. And it evokes a variety of moods. And I'm just thinking first of the challenges for you as a writer. You had to reconcile the non-fictional universe of Henry James and the, the Five of Hearts with the fictional universe of Sherlock Holmes. And the adherents on both sides of this divide are absolutely fanatical about making sure that the facts, as they consider them the facts, are the facts. So I'd like you to talk about when you had to wrestle these two timelines together, who, how did you decide who would win? Yeah, that's a good question because it was easy to answer that, though, at the time because I knew that if I screwed up an historical fact, uh, I would be tut-tutted at by some professor somewhere, probably at a reading. But if I really screwed up the Holmesian canon, they'd put a, a, a price out on my head. They, they don't allow you to do much. But one of the reasons I wanted to write it was to get into that uh, extra Holmesian stuff. It's like the book of the Apocrypha for the Bible or the Haditha for the Koran. It's not scripture. It's not the canon. But what's grown up around Holmes, like where he grew up, what his father did and all this stuff, it's just, you know, Holmesians fans over the decades and centuries creating this stuff and others going along. So I gave quite a different interpretation of his younger years. And I'm still afraid if I get invited to Baker Street or Regulars meeting, I don't think I'm going. <laughs> you know, um, you do a great job with uh, creating the characters. And I think, uh, on the other hand, creating Henry James as a character, that that's a... You know, that's treading into hallowed ground for the English uh, department. Yes, and I, I hope it's an avenue for some young readers to get to Henry James. I appeared last night uh, with David Morell, a friend of mine, famous writer, but we spent most of the time talking to the crowd about Henry James, who most of them weren't, didn't like Henry James too much, and the bookstore owner hated him. But Dave and I were happy talking about him. It is hallowed ground. What the big challenge was for me with both of my characters, primary characters, Sherlock and James, was being able to give a sense of viewing things from their mind because they were both... Henry James was the, the man who said, a, a writer is a person uh, on whom nothing is lost. And that was absolutely true of James. Nothing missed his view and hearing and smell and everything else. He just sucked up reality and stored it for some future use. But you could say that about Sherlock Holmes, too. That was his great skill, the detail. You know, when I was reading this uh, novel about Holmes, I was just thinking how often he's been used and revived and resuscitated. And you always think that, I, and to me, it, it, I started to think that Holmes is the mystery version of the vampire, in that the vampire is a trope that every time somebody else brings up a new vampire, I think, oh, my God, I cannot stand to read another vampire novel. And then if, you, if the author's skilled, you just go, wow, there's still something left there. And there's still something left with Sherlock Holmes, too. And I think that it must be fun for you. you it's clearly you had a blast writing this, didn't you? I did. I did. And it was difficult, too, because uh, I did tread lightly in places because I certainly didn't want to make a mistake. One of my favorite scenes is where Henry James, staying at John Hayes' home in Washington, D.C., reads himself to sleep because um, Clara Hay is a huge fan of the published bits of home stories that have come out in the Strand and before they buy from another publisher. So he's reading about this man he's met, reading the uh, Watson or Arthur Conan Doyle story with whoever wrote it, and I'm having Henry James critique the stories, plot-wise, error-wise, you know, mistakes, absurdity-wise. Like he's thinking, did this? Did he just write that they trained a snake to go up through a ventilator, kill somebody in the other room, come back at the sound of a whistle, drink some milk, and go in an aerated cage? Did he really say that? And so it, he would have been one hell of a reviewer for for Sherlock Holmes books. Well. The perceptions on both sides of the of the aisle, so to speak, here are really they're hysterical, and that's one of the things. When I read this, approached this book, I thought, well, this is going to be a great twisty mystery, a great 
you know, hist- ex- you know, what lovely detailed historical fiction that I know Dan Simmons always does. But what I didn't expect was I think this is much of this book is an out and out hilarious comedy. It's a satire on James Holmes and especially on uh, metafiction. You just leave no take no prisoners with no, regards I, to that. I piled some metafiction on metafiction. I, <laughs> There's this voice from the future who comments only four times, I think, in the book, but it suddenly pulls you out of everything, and it, and it, it proves Henry James's worst fears in the book true, that he's being used as a character by some mediocre writer in the future. Well, and I think, too, that the, the way you uh, talk about writing, you, you get into talk about how uh, closely observed third person, I mean, you just break down that fourth wall with a with an, a sledgehammer <laughs> when you were writing this were you like writing for jokes or were you just having fun i was having fun and if other people enjoy it and get the humor that's great i'm i'm, I'm so glad you appreciated the humorous side of the book i just thought it was great now this is a very intricately uh, constructed novel too i mean the way it's put together it's like this giant ticking clockwork I guess we'd have to say a steampunk kind of machine. And I'd like you to just talk about, was this, um, did you have to do, it seemed, there are so many different timelines. Did you have to struggle to, in advance, to set up a superstructure before you started, embarked on your journey? Absolutely. Because uh, I may have mentioned to you once before in one of our chats that when I write historical novels and insert fictional characters, um, I think of, Robert Frost, who said blank verse is like playing tennis without a net. Well, moving around historical characters where they weren't, having them say things they didn't and so forth, is the same thing, playing tennis without a net. So I had to find a time when all those characters could be together, where they could say things they actually said, and this includes Holmes. And uh, luckily, this was during Holmes's great hiatus between 18... Uh, 91 and 94, when he just disappeared. And this book tells the real reason he disappeared and faked his own death. And it's one of the few months in Henry James's, I'd, I'd say, almost too well-documented life. He's been biography, biographied to death and used by really good writers as character. But there's not a day of Holmes' adult, I'm, I apologize, James' adult life where you don't know who he saw, what dinner party he went to. But luckily, there was this little blank from March to the end of April in 1893, right when I wanted it, where they thought he was in Paris, but nobody was sure. <laughs> so I had freedom to do that. But then I had all the other characters, like Sam Clemens. I really wanted him in this book, but he didn't come back from Europe. You know, He was couldn't afford to keep his family in America at that point in his life. That page typesetter had broken him financially. So they were living in Europe, where in those days it was cheaper. But I happened to be able to work in the actual date, which was the only time during that period where he went back to their most beloved home in Hartford. And he did it with these characters, and you could see the emotion of Sam Clemens. So that's fun to be able to make things fit. It, it One of the things, too, I was thinking that you do a great job of is pacing the walk-ons. There's so many different great characters out of you know, history that it's so much fun to see that just get kind of passing mention or bigger mention like uh, Samuel Clemens. And, I, and I'd like you to just talk about pacing those kind of nuggets in the, the overall story. I, I listened to an interesting conversation last night, again, with David Morell, a um, well-known bookstore owner, and, and she's an expert in mystery. And one of the things that they both noticed were mystery series that we love, but some um, incidental character, sidekick or whatever, seems to be so loved by the author that the sidekick, who's not interesting, sometimes really off-putting, seems to take over the series and almost ruin it. And I'd hate that to happen with like a Sam Clemens walk-on. So when they did get their time at Teddy Roosevelt at a dinner party, I read that aloud <laughs> to a crowd the other night. I mean, who reads aloud dinner party conversations? Well, when you have 12 people, nine of them are some of the greatest wits in in the world, uh, it's fun to read because uh, none of them are above punning. And Teddy Roosevelt was so out of his league. And when he took on Henry James and started saying that uh, he you know, didn't want 
American writers, especially the effeminate ones, to rush off to Europe as soon as it got tough in the United States. They needed to come back to America and write about America. James, who'd been so quiet and friendly up to that point, quietly just cut young Teddy Roosevelt into the little shreds. So they can have their moments, but I don't want any of them trying to take over the book. Well, no, they don't. And I think, too, that you have a, a great mystery at the heart of this. And it's uh, appropriately enough, and you say this, um, both you describe both Holmes and James as being mysteries within mysteries. And this novel has a mystery within a mystery within a mystery. I think there's about three levels of shell game going on here, maybe four. So um, when you put together the novel, did you understand all the, how deep you were going to go and come out? out? Or did you start at the edge and say, I think I'm going to go a couple levels and then keep digging in? No, you you start writing sort of at the edge so readers, you know, don't know what's coming at them. But the whole reason for the novel was actually um, Henry James's older brother William, just three years earlier than the 1893 setting of the book, had written The, the Principles of Psychology and uh, made him world famous. One lousy book, says his brother, you know, and I've, I've already written, published 22. But one of the things that William James dealt with as America's first great psychologist was the difference between I and me, which is identity. And that's what this book is really about for the two main characters, Holmes, who's, who's used his radiocination to realize that he's just fictional, that these, uh, you know, where did that bullet hit Watson, leg or arm? It can't be both and all these other things. Where did this other wife come from? And why did she call him James, you know, and Watson's wife? All these errors that Conan Doyle made are in Holmes's life along with these blanks between his, his adventures. It can't all be just the 7% solution of cocaine he's taking. So he's decided it's fictional. And at the beginning of the book, he's ready to end his life, as is James for, for other reasons. Uh, but the fun part was both of them finding in her own way the difference between I and me. And one of the ways William James put it is, me is what you own, what you do, and me is who comes home and his little dog knows you, so you're me. But who is the I looking at that me? And that sounds almost pretentious, but it was in every page of the book. It's a fascinating discussion, and it's interesting the way you embed uh, James's perceptions of himself and his own understanding of himself is so interesting because he was probably, these days we would describe him as being a, a closeted gay man, but he doesn't have that understanding. He doesn't have the advantage of our, of our, or I guess maybe it's an advantage. Uh, so talk about creating James's own very tentative understanding of just who he is. Well, he created himself, as did Holmes, um, out of whole cloth. Henry James knew the person he wanted to be. His whole life he wanted to be the master in fiction. And it was about this time, about 1893, 1895, when his awful play Guy Domvo came out and he got booed on stage, that he just felt he'd never achieve his goal of being the master. So he was always debating on who he was, my argument would be that it wasn't because he was a closeted gay. And there was a wonderful interview Cynthia Ozick did between her and Henry James, in which she says, well, it's time to tell us, you know, like modern interview style, are you or are you not gay? And James looks at him and says, well, I try to be. Sometimes I feel low, but, you know, I, I try to have a gay demeanor. No, no, are, are you homosexual? And he says, I beg your pardon? Um... It just was something that I don't think defined James. I think he had so many layers to himself that he would have been as secretive if he'd been heterosexual because his life, his deepest thoughts, although he put them in his writing in very coded ways, were his business and nobody else's. Well, one of the things, too, that as I was reading this book, I was thinking this is really a book about how we are all the authors of our own disasters and our own uh, stunning successes as well. Well, amen to the disasters part. I believe that. <laughs> uh, you, have, you do have some really great other players in here, though. Uh, and so I'd like you to talk about, especially I really liked Henry Adams. I thought you did a great job with him. And so... it because of 
the way his marriage to Clover and her relationship to Daisy Miller. So there's all sorts of layers as a reader experiencing this. We're, we're thinking about Henry James's work. We're thinking about Henry James's life. We're thinking about your characters. There are so many layers as we're reading this. It's, uh, it's a very Onion-esque reading experience. The one out loud reading I've had on this little book tour, I read Dinner Table Conversation, which is not what most writers would choose to do. But as I mentioned, these are nine great minds out of the 12 at the table. And uh, with Henry Adams, um, I had warned people ahead of time, don't do too much research on people you've loved for years and admired. And I've admired and loved Henry Adams since I read The Education of Henry Adams, his fictionalized autobiography when I was in college. And I, I think he was an intellectual, the likes of which we haven't seen for a long time, as were many of his friends, like um, John Hay and so forth, as well as being a great public servant, Secretary of State, Hay did everything. And, um, but Adams is also anti-Semitic. So in the middle of this dinner conversation, um, they're serving a 14-course meal, and it's the, a famous chef who worked for Delmonico's before he started freelancing, the best chef in America doing it. But instead of canvasback duck, which is about the eighth course, they're having teal. And uh, Henry, I'm sorry, John Hay says, I, they say it's the teal are disappearing. You just can't get them in the stores because either the celery they eat is disappearing or they're being overhunted. No one's sure why. And Henry Adams speaks up. He says, did you know that two-thirds of the restaurants in New York are owned directly or secretly by Jews? And that's exactly what they do. They, they're probably driving up the price of canvasback duck deliberately. And it's so ugly. You know, and I, my other hero, Teddy Roosevelt, is at the table, and he's saying things that they sure didn't put in a PBS special about what a progressive Teddy was. You know, he he was uh, talking about having to wipe out every indigenous person in North America so that the American white race could rule it. Same in Australia, he said. And so you you have to give them credit for the times they lived in, but these are men so advanced intellectually and in their imagination that when they do something like Adams's comment or a lot of what Teddy Roosevelt said, it, it hurts. I thought you did a good job at that. I mean, it was actually, I found it pretty disturbing, but it um, struck me, it rang true. And, and I think that uh, as a writer for you, creating that balance, you just give us that one scene where we really have to see that side of things, but creating that balance was, I mean, it gave the book a lot of strength and a lot of resonance that might otherwise, you know, might not be there. Thank you. I, uh, as a former SF writer, um, people think SF writers predict things, but we don't, of course. I mean, there really has never been a sound science fiction prediction that really came true. Um, and I'm sorry for it because I like space travel and we're in the doldrums now. Uh, but one thing is, I I really believe, I know, in that gnosis way of knowing, that every generation and every culture thinks it's at the absolute apex of a pyramid, an ethical pyramid of evolution. They are so far beyond these lower steps. I mean, you look back and look how they treated African-American people, look how they treated the Indians. I know in my heart that in 75 or 100 years, this era will be just looked at as shameful for reasons that we don't understand because we're in it. So when I'm writing about characters in those times, you have to remember they're the product of those times too. Well, I, I loved too the effect of the everything uh, new is old again uh, with regards to the Haymarket massacre and the presence of the bomb-throwing anarchists during this period, which we think that we tend to like to think for some reason that we invented terrorism. It's all our fault. I mean, it's been around for a long time, and uh, you give us some great examples of that. So talk about that, because that Haymarket Massacre is a focal point in a way for this book, too, as well, and the New York draft riots. Oh, yeah. The draft riots were during the Civil War, and they were so shameful. I'm Irish, but the Irish just rioted, and uh, they weren't going to be drafted, and um they burned down a black orphanage, killing a lot of black kids as part of their burning down whole blocks of 
um, New York. That was shameful. But he, even later, the um, by the time the anarchists were the subject of so much serious conversation in the 1890s, they were a serious threat. They killed two presidents, and they the Haymarket riot. The the people who did the killing threw the bombs and and shot the bullets at the police. Um, we're almost certainly guilty of doing it, we know now. But they're still heroes. They're, every year they're memorialized where some of them were buried after they were executed, whereas they put up a statue to the year afterwards of a policeman there, and they finally had to move it into private grounds in the police headquarters because it, to this day, um, more than 100 years later, it was being defiled almost daily because the police were the bad guys in that, according to the papers and the public sentiment. It's just history that points out that, yes, those shots really did come from the anarchists, and yes, they had planned to do it, and yes, they did bring those bombs to the thing to throw at the police, and they chose that spot because there was no place for the police to escape, no alleys or places to run. And, uh, you know, it's not popular to say that, but the the, uh, folk heroes of the anarchists are... That's not who they were. You're a guy who likes to uh, find something that's unpopular but true <laughs> and <laughs> say it in a very articulate manner. This is, I think, one of your main modus operandi. <laughs> that explains the hate mail I get. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I really liked uh, the way that you played with the Holmesian canon and, and Holmes himself. So uh, especially, there are so many great... Um, Contrasting the the take out take apart taking apart home a home story which you do in one in one place and reconstructing it with the quote true adventures that followed it I think is so interesting so I'd like you to talk about that scene which is just it is hysterical I was laughing out loud it's also I think a return to your horror fiction roots somewhere deep within. I'm not sure which specific scene you mean. Uh, I think it's the copper where he's talking, where he's explaining to James what happened in the copper beaches, is it? The oh. reality. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um. <laughs> that scene is, I was laughing out loud even though I thought it was really over the top. <laughs> yes. Uh, Clara Hay had just read uh, the story of the famous racehorse, um, uh, I've just forgotten the name. Sea biscuit. Sea, no, it was biscuit. That... Sea breeze was the real horse. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, in in his story, you know, there's the, all this daring do, and a trainer was killed, and he didn't. He just turned over because he hadn't read any of Watson's stories yet. Holmes hadn't, and he said, "I've never heard of a horse with this name, a colt with this name," and he said. He should have said Watson is a, a gambling addict on horse races. He wouldn't know, but I've, I've never heard of it. And um, John Hay says, I told you, Clara, I lose money at the races every time we go to England, and there's no colt or filly with that name. But Holmes goes on to say, however, in 1877, I had a case where a famous racehorse, Seabreeze, the real name, wandered away from the farm, and uh, went to the farm next door. And so I, I worked to the ultimate of my detective ability, detecting abilities, following these clear hoof prints in the mud over to the other farm where the farmer was keeping him safe and gave him to me. So that could be what Watson wrote about. And Clara Hayes said, but didn't the trainer die? Wasn't he killed? And he said, well, unfortunately, he did die. He was a very young man. He was just walking the horse in the evening, and he made a mistake uh, he f- he thought the horse um, Seabreeze was lame on his right rear leg, so he, he got behind the horse and knelt down, which is never a really good idea. And before lifting the hoof to check on it, he lit a lucifer match right next to the horse, and the horse just kicked once out of instinct. And and then Holmes remembers he's talking to a whole table full of people of different ages, you know, including a couple of younger people. And he says, "And well, let's say he died of his injuries." But there certainly was no mystery about it, you know. And poor Clara Hay, who loves the Holmes story, she was so let down. You know, um, we also get to to see some familiar, other familiar faces from from the Holmes canon, and I th- thought you did a, a a great job with Irene Adler. 
and working her into both the Holmes canon and the James canon, that was a real master stroke. And well, thank you very difficult much. Difficult to pull off, I think. I mean, she's she's sort of deified among Holmesians. She was the woman. When you read the story carefully, it wasn't a romantic thing, really. It's just that she was the woman who, who got away with something, who really defeated Holmes. So he had admiration for her, the way he would... Uh, in my book, uh, I'm giving away something, but uh, Holmes invented Moriarty. He invented somebody he really admired who, who might be smarter than himself so he could fake his own death. But uh, Adler, she really had outdone Holmes. So weaving her into this tale in America and making her central and giving them a history together that we haven't heard about Holmes. and uh, I've heard it pronounced Irene Adler, and I don't know where that came from, but... Uh, to me, it's still Irene Adler, uh, giving them a little bit of interesting background that would have disturbed Holmes for years, I think. You know, too much emotion, too personal. Uh, was a lot of fun. Well, you also have a lot of fun with Holmes and his uh, various drug addictions. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love this, the, the, the heroic drug, the heroic drug. I, <laughs> That's what it was called. <laughs> really? Bayer, Mr. Bayer of Bayer Aspirin had uh, had created this drug in uh, Europe where it was sold in the UK. I'm sorry, England. It was beginning to be sold, but it was, for some strange reason it was uh, on the black market more in the United States at the time. And all Holmes was doing was following Watson's advice of getting off that cocaine because it's addictive and it would hurt him in the long run. He was using it so often. So Bayer and his company said, this drug is heroic. It has no side effects. Uh, it, it doesn't make you depend upon it. There's no addiction possibility. And it's a better painkiller than morphine, which can be dangerous when used in excess. So we're going to call this heroic drug heroin. So Holmes had to try it. <laughs> now, uh, you, you also, I think, when we're um, immersed in this narrative, um, going back and forth, uh, the the question of who am I, who is me, uh, this whole I- idea of identity is so interesting because, of course, I am reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> and so this uh, put you essentially what you do is a kind of a neat trick is to make the reader a character in your book by virtue of the fact that we're reading. And this is what makes it so powerful. This is a book in a sense about the reading experience. I really like the way you read, Rick. <laughs> I really do. Because that was meant to be there. And I'm very pleased that someone's commenting on it. But the reader is very much... It's not just simple metafiction. It's an interaction between the reader and the characters. Henry James, for instance, in the book is terrified that you're out there reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't blame him because, I mean, his writing is so pristine and so pure, and we see him as less pristine and less pure, but I think more sympathetic than you might think of from his writing. Yes, and I think that's the real James. I think his writing could be perceived as cold, and he could be cold, there was a cold shell around him. But uh, the more I've read James and about James over the decades, the the more I... I don't understand the man. I don't pretend to. But I get a sense of the the warmth and the sympathy at the core of the man. So, uh, But the thought of him being a mere character... He, he was afraid to be an H. Ryder Haggard-type book, an action book. <laughs> and he would be called upon to do something... So he was horrified at the slightest possibility, since he was hanging out with a fictional character, that he was also fictional. Well, and two, you bring back a character, um, a narrator of one of your previous books a couple times. Wilkie Collins gets a few uh, mentions here. Not very complimentary. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I got the Wilkie Collins fan club against me. Um, But uh, people are wondering if I'm obsessed with drugs. I don't use drugs, never have recreationally, and, and when I had to take painkillers for a while, I went off them as soon as I could because I'd, I've never wanted to be dependent on anyone or anything except probably my wife. Um, but drugs interest me, and David Morell, the Rambo's daddy, said something interesting to me last night. He said, when you look at Victorian England, uh, 
every house, except for a few total teetotalers, every house in England had laudanum in it, usually pints and pints of it, which is, of course, opium and distilled in various liquor, but especially wine. And it was the only thing that really helped pain other than just strictly alcohol. So women used it more than men. And he said the Victorian era, everything from the way they decorated their houses with these soft melt into overstuffed chairs to all the bric-a-brac to the colors they chose, you know, which just clashed with themselves. They were so wild and drapes and, and uh, tapestries and rugs. He said it's a drug dream. <laughs> He's, I never had thought about that, but yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. This is a, a, a civilization that was completely addled from dawn to dusk. It really was. And from 1850 to about 1910, you know, Coca-Cola got in on it. At, at, right at the end, they were putting cocaine in their drink. But you could get it anywhere. You could buy it from a newsboy. You, uh, you didn't have to go to a chemist, a pharmacist to get it. Uh, it was Laudanum was universal. And the truth is that women were using it more than men. Although the a lot of the writers we're talking about were, and of course Wilkie Collins drank impossible amounts of it; it would kill twenty men. So once again, I've disrespected poor Wilkie. Well, he's always fun, <laughs> fun to encounter. You know, um, in this book too, uh, the Civil War plays a, a part, and so I'd like you to talk about you know taking that that conflict and like percolating it upward. It ran deeply in different directions in my novel because it did during the second half of the 19th century in America. I mean, it was such a spasm nightmare that the country wasn't mature enough or emotionally prepared for so many millions of men dying. And they're all Americans, even rebels. <clears throat> Excuse me. But um, they each dealt with it in such different ways. With um, Henry James, he had what's been known across the century now as an obscure hurt. He had something with his back, except when they took him to, father took him to Boston to the best doctor. The doctor told him there was nothing wrong with him and to get out and walk five miles every morning and do some real work. And <laughs> But his obscure hurt kept him at... Harvard, rather than enlisting, as two of his brothers, Wilkie and Bob, did. And so he avoided the war. But so many others, like Oliver Wendell Holmes, who makes an appearance in this book, went to war early, and it was the high point of their lives. Here's Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great Supreme Court justice. But he still had his uniform. He never allowed it to be washed. So it still smelled of the blood. He had terrible wounds and blood and pus and everything from 1864. So it was uh, the great event of the century. Uh, one thing that uh, is often happens in a science fiction novel is what is called name checking. Uh -huh. And you do your own form of, I guess, historical name checking as when uh, Henry James thinks about the turn of the social screw at the dinner party he had attended. <laughs> <laughs> you have so much fun with this stuff. <laughs> Uh, that's how the, uh, any writer's mind works, of course. And, you know, even if he thought of that phrase frequently at dinner parties, it would end up in a title sooner or later. One of the things, too, I like, too, is that you describe, uh, later on in the book, you describe America as a young country that will always be young, too young, bearing these weapons that it shouldn't have but does and doesn't know how to use. I mean, you wrote that about a time that was about 120 years ago. But, I mean, it is uh, when it, that's evergreen, isn't it? Uh, the novel I'm working on now, uh, not quite <clears throat> close to finishing, but working hard on and totally involved in is called Omega Canyon. And it's set in Los Alamos. And it's not just another, I mean, a book about making the bomb. It's got a complex plot. But my one of my two primary characters is a young Austrian physicist refugees working on the bomb. And uh, once again, we're right back where they thought they were in 1860 and 1890. A young country with young ideas, sort of naive, um, but with the biggest weapons. 
At least that was true, you know, after we became a world power after the Spanish-American War. And politics uh, also plays a part in this book, and I think a, a nice, a, a nice nuanced one because it's kind of in the background; it's percolating through. Though, so um, you had to. One thing that's nice is that you have clearly immersed yourself so thoroughly in the culture that you can let these things come back, come up of their own. So when you're doing that, do you have to like trim out parts? No, you just have to ahead of time know that that's really not what you're writing about and keep it to a minimum. It would be what, say, John Hay would talk to Clarence King about. They were all immersed in politics, and Mm -hmm. that was John Hay's life. You know, he was 21 years old when he was Lincoln's secretary, along with John Nicolay, and uh, then he became left the White House before Lincoln was killed and became ambassador to France and served. He was a true public servant his whole life. Eventually, he ended up being Secretary of State for whom they called the boy, Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) (laughs) The brash, loud, uh, not very polite boy. But uh, having these people talk about politics was just mother's milk to them. But I I had no political statement to make. My uh, last book, The Abominable, was about a 1925 expedition of a very young American a British uh, Great War veteran and a young Frenchman trying to climb Mount Everest in 1925. And I had one review, I'll mention it was in the Chicago Tribune, where a local poet did a political analysis of climbing Mount Everest and decided that I was a right-wing fanatic. You know, there is not a whiff, a hint of politics in this book. It's about mountain climbing. And unless you don't want Nazis you know, spoken of poorly. There's no politics in the book at all. But uh, once you begin to be seen as a political author, and I had one book that dealt with a dystopian future, uh, you just can't get away from that criticism. Well, I I have to say the book, I know the book you're talking about, Flashback, which I thought was brilliant and still think (laughs) is brilliant. And uh, Well, bless you. And I think uh, a book that, but that was you, I, I, I mean... That's another book where you were, I can tell that Dan Simmons was having fun. He's just like throwing red meat at enraged bears. <laughs> You're right, and there are too many enraged bears these days. I I used to be a Democratic operative. I actually worked in politics um, and started working for Robert Kennedy when I was still in college and um, was with him the night on my birthday, April 4th, 1968, when he had agreed to go to the toughest African-American party of Indianapolis. Um, Rosie Greer and others, uh, the the local black leaders in Indianapolis, said that it wasn't a good idea. It just was too volatile. But RFK said, I'm going. He wanted to speak to the crowd. And this was before all the smartphones and everything. So they hadn't heard that Martin Luther King had been killed that day. I don't think anybody in the crowd had heard it. They hadn't heard any news, been home. And uh, it was broken to them by Robert F. Kennedy. And to be there and to hear that, you know, is to experience a little bit of history. And it was a beautiful speech. Yeah. Boy, that's... Well, I think that uh, that's the anecdote you need to tell before you start talking about flashback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or uh, how I worked for Ted Kennedy. or yeah. I worked... Uh, my big mistake was Gary Hart in 84. <laughs> well, uh, there you could do worse. You could have been uh, Nixon. Yeah, I guess so. I, you're talking to somebody who has, was a young Republican. Well, you're smart. You were ahead of the curve is all. <laughs> well, uh, what I've seen are the parties change out from under mm, us. Mm. I think the Republican Party has changed less. It's it's bifurcated more. It's uh, The conservative element is more isolated than it used to be. Uh, I remember when Goldwater was nominated. Um, but the Democratic Party has changed so much since I was a part of it in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s that it's really hard to recognize. Well, everything's changed by virtue of how much money has come into the picture. Now, uh, one of the things about this novel that I thought I I really loved was was the sense of place in the various places you visit, in particular uh, uh, Clara Hayes, uh, the memorial 
did you actually go there? Is that does it actually have all? I mean, is it as you describe it in there as Henry James and Holmes experience it? This is Clover Adams. Clover experience. Adams, right? Yes. It's in Rock Creek Park Cemetery, and I haven't gone there, but uh, one of these years I'm going to take a vacation. And we'd love to go with, uh, my wife and I would love to go with our now 33-year-old daughter and her husband to Washington. We've never gone. I've never seen a Vietnam memorial. Um, I, I went uh, to Washington during national anti-war protests during the Vietnam days, but never seen the Maya Lin memorial that I very much want to see. I just want to experience Washington again. And going out to see this um, uh, sculpture, um, St. Gaudens, I blanked on his name for a second, but he was a great sculptor of the 19th century, truly one of the greats. And Henry Adams wanted him to do a sort of a Buddha thing. And Adams, after his wife Clover's death, just wandered the South Seas. He was going for three years. He was gone for more than a year. Uh, and then rushed to France because he was in love with one of his friend's wives, Lizzie Cameron, and she sort of said, come to me. And so he he rented a steamship to sail around the earth to her. And he got there. And she was out in a party with some man and just said, I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had to put up with a lot. But he, he paid all this money to this great sculptor who didn't do a Buddha, who didn't want to do a Buddha, who did, I think, one of the finest pieces of, of uh, funereal mourning art morning with a U, of course, ever done. It's this somber figure in a cape and cowl, a hood, uh, hand up against the chin, a little bit like the thinker. But you don't, it's androgynous, but in a strong way. You don't know if it's a male or female. Just looking down at where Clover was buried, there's no sense of, of life after death. There's no sense of some sort of joy or redemption. There's just sorrow all the way down, as a friend and I like to say about an old guy seeking wisdom and found out that the earth was on turtles. It's no use, said the wise man. It's turtles all the way down. And this sculpture, which is on the, in the art a photograph of it's on the back of my book, the hardcover, The Fifth Heart, is so powerful just in photographs. And I looked at photographs from the time it was first unveiled, when, when Adams wasn't even in the country, to today, and uh, so I added a few things to it, like you know, a little ladder going down to a little secret room beneath, because it's true that Henry Adams loved to sit nearby and surrounded by hedges and listen to people's comments about the sculpture. He just wanted to eavesdrop, and so many people were shocked and upset by it, but that'll be the first place uh, my family and I go if we get that vacation in Washington. Uh, the joy of eavesdropping a famous writerly occupation itself, isn't it? It seems to be, yes. <laughs> now, uh, you referred to yourself as an ex, as a, you once a science fiction writer. Is that the case, really? No more? Well, only, it's been a long time since I've written any real SF. Right. Uh, I did Illuminum Olympos, two big books. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I promised that I would never write another novel in the Hyperion universe, but... Um, in the last year especially, I've gotten that weird itch that to have giant canvas, like Monet when he was uh, going blind from cataracts, mm -hmm. and he was, he was painting water lilies and so forth on canvases that were larger than walls. They were so big because he could see on a huge scale, and they're so wonderful. And then he had the first successful cataract operation. His paintings got smaller again. Well, to <laughs> me, there's no cataracts involved with writing SF, but the canvases... That's the only genre that gives you a canvas that size. Even a multi-generational family history or something through the Napoleonic Wars isn't going to give you the width and breadth and depth that you could do in SF. So having promised never to do another Hyperion novel, I realized I never said I'd, I wouldn't uh, do novellas. In fact, when I sold the four novels to the film company, Warner Brothers and uh, Graham King Films, um, they got four novels and a novella, but that doesn't inhibit me from writing. So I have these five novellas under the title Shrike Quincunx, which you have to be careful saying, and um, I would like to do it. This book I'm working on now is the last for this publisher on the contract. I don't know if they'll want me back. 
So if I have to go wander in the wilderness, I'm going to start writing these novellas. Well, I'm sure that uh, Subterranean Press will be happy to do them. Are they going to do a version of this? Uh, Subterranean Press will do the Fifth Heart, yes. Fine. And and uh, Bill at Subterranean Press is uh, one of the most earnest editors I've ever met and one of the people who cares most for covers. And he's nice enough to ask for my advice, and we work together with artists. And uh, I'm not a collector, but, mm-hmm. if, but if I were, I think I'd be thrilled. And the, the fourth and last book of the Hyperion Quartet is coming out. I just hope the cover is as good as we want because it's, uh, they've all been just the Shrike and Aenea. Aenea, the Shrike holding a baby, the Shrike with a girl about eight years old, within his arms, but she's looking she straight at you. She just power of her look was powerful. And then a young woman who's not in the embrace of the shrike, but is sort of leaning against it as if she's used to it. And the final one will be Aenea dead being yelled as a Pieta with the Shrike holding her. And this makes no sense to people who haven't read the four books, but she was the Messiah who could choose whether or not she passed along the next step of human evolution to people, but she had to die to do it. And uh she meant a lot to me, so these four books from Subterranean Press are important. And Hyperion itself, what are the chances that we'll ever see that come to some kind of adaptation for the screen, small or large? Well, it was sold uh, more than eight years ago, and they just went around in circles with the script. They never asked me. Uh, they wanted to have at least a two, maybe a three-movie franchise out of it. You can't sell one movie these days, one book. It has to be a franchise. And I know how to do that, he mm-hmm. says, with no modesty whatsoever, because I would deconstruct my four Hyperion books. In fact, if I were to write them again, I would change them this way. And Aenea the Messiah would be in all four, including the first one where they're traveling to see the Shrike. She'd be a little girl. And by doing this, you can have her age and the love affair with her guardian, this soldier named Rawl and Dimian. It, it would grow along, and you wouldn't have to worry about the kid, uh, you know, getting too old for the second movie or something, or getting weird because you just have different actors at each stage of her, of her age. But that would tie the three things together in a unity to which they haven't discovered yet. None of the writers have cracked that, and maybe mine won't work at all. But what they are doing is they're paying the actor, Bradley Cooper, who just did American Sniper. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's writing the script. Really? Yeah. He he wanted he he was on a talk show and he said, "What my college roommate and I always really wanted to do is write a script to a, this great book called a, a series called Hyperion Science Fiction and Sci-Fi." He said, and uh, the uh, producers immediately got in touch with him, and he said he'd do a treatment and. Last I heard, he got carried away and was really writing the screenplay. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah, but can he write? (laughs) (laughs) We we know he can act, and he's a handsome man. Uh, American Sniper was brilliant acting, but uh, (laughs) I would say like a writer there, too. Yeah, uh, uh, that seems to be the the last uh, thing that Hollywood considers in putting together a movie is uh, they've got everything else is great, and then they'll build it all in a based on um, on a balsa wood uh, uh, framework. Well, now the balsa wood is a comic book. It's <laughs> yeah. taken over Hollywood almost literally. Uh, that's true and unfortunate. Now, uh, you're working on Tell us a little bit about your forthcoming novel, as much as you're willing to share. You shared a little bit. Well, Omega Canyon is about a young Austrian physicist refugee. Uh, his father was rich, ran fourth largest steel company in Europe. And his name's Paul Haber, and he defected in 1938 and went to England to work on their nuclear program, which is called Tube Alloy, and they turned it into one word. And after a certain amount of time, they couldn't use the word uranium. They couldn't bring themselves to write it or say it. It was always Tube Alloy, <laughs> and, and plutonium was 49. And when they came to America, the American physicists looked at them oddly, because they couldn't say we need you know so much U-235, enriched U-235. Is we need that enriched tube alloy. <laughs> and so he was uh, came by way of Britain, and uh, his brother had one goal in life. His brother's totally opposite him, and yet they're so close. 
His brother wanted to be in both the Winter and Summer 1936 Olympics, and he he hated Hitler. Didn't didn't care about the swastika in Germany. He just wanted to win gold in the Olympics, and he's good enough athlete he could have. He qualified f- for both the Winter and Summer Olympics, but Hermann Goering had something against his father and also wanted the steel company. So he had the family declared Mischlinger officially, which is uh, second degree. It's okay, you can hang around and not be killed, but it, it means mongrel or half-breed Jew, Jews in your background. And so both these boys um, came over to Allied side with uh, Eric the younger brother working for the SOE, the really active part of the intelligence. They blew things up and killed people. But then he also was tasked, telling too much of the story, to also, which uh, Leslie R. Groves, General Groves, who headed up the Manhattan Project, created. And he wanted a group of scientists and really brave guys to rush into Europe. It's, this is like monuments men with atomic bombs. Right. These are the people. It was Operation Paperclip. Yeah. Paperclip brought the scientists back, the mm-hmm. Germans. and But this they had to, the war's still going on. And if they had to go behind enemy lines to find that uranium that came from Belgium, uh, from the Congo, uh, that the Germans had, they had to. They had to find any reactor. They had to find Werner Heisenberg and Otto Hahn and all the other nuclear physicists who were working for the Third Reich. They the rumors of how far ahead the Germans were were driving the people in Los Alamos, especially the ex-European refugees. And this small group also, which my brother character is working with, um, they couldn't wait for the French to get into Paris to, to talk to the French physicists who had the only cyclotron in Europe. The Germans were, borrowed it, uh, but came to Paris to use it. So they just went in and took the sniper fire and stuff before the, the French drove the American tanks in. And... So on one hand, I've got this reflective, quiet, young physicist and telling too much he's being blackmailed. He had put his Jewish wife and baby on a boat to Turkey to get to Palestine in 1938 and learned when he got to England early in 39, learned from the guy who's leading these uh, 172 Jews over the hills and you know past the partisans and Arabs into Palestine that they'd been stopped by a German patrol boat, and out of 174 Jews, they took two off, his wife and his baby son. And he didn't know why they just took the two, but he knows they must be dead. And suddenly he gets proof of life. There's a six-year-old son, there's his wife who's been kept alive until late 1944, February 44. And somebody in Germany wants everything he knows about the bomb, every diagram. That sounds like fun. You're really having fun with this history, aren't you? I am, but I am nervous because I'm I'm getting up to recent times. It's okay to deal with Dickens, but um, my physicist Paul Habers, um, he lives in the big house where the all the bachelors live, and the guy in the room next to him, so like a roommate, is Richard Feynman, <laughs> and you know maybe the greatest physicist of the 20th century, mm-hmm. even counting Einstein. And Feynman was a naughty boy. I, I don't know what you know about him, but beyond being this extremely brilliant physicist, his hobby at Los Alamos was picking locks and breaking combinations and breaking into safes. He wanted to see every nuclear secret the United States had. And they put up with him because he was an amusing fellow. But uh, it's, it's fascinating. He shows my character the secret way to get through a combination lock that has a million combinations. Well, I guess you will have to wait for that. When's that going to come out next year? I hope so. Oh, yes. really? Oh, good. I hope it'll, because it, I'll get it in the summer, and it should be on next year's list sometime. And I'm looking forward to uh, your return to science fiction and maybe horror. What about the horror world? Uh, I don't even see it as a separate world. I mean, there's so much horror in the world today, isn't there? <laughs> I guess so. I'd like to write something that really scares people. And I had a little thing that I actually gave to a convention. They wanted me as guest of honor, and I couldn't make it because of health. So I sent them the beginning of a book called Vastation. Oh, yeah. I I think you told me about that title. Yeah. The title may be erroneous because the James family all had Vastations where they broke down because something was in the room with them, some awful presence. And this is a little more specific than that. But it is a pure just... 
uh, almost said a bad word, but just a nonstop, headfirst horror story and uh, against something that was, is quite different. And uh, so I hope uh, I'll find time to write that and a publisher who would be willing to publish it. I've been speaking with Dan Simmons. His newest book is The Fifth Heart. Thank you for joining me, Dan. Rick, I love talking to you. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.